The Secrets of Sacred Art is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Sacred Art, where we unearth the hidden treasures, history, and deeper meanings in religious and sacred art. To see the beautiful art in this episode, please watch The Secrets of Sacred Art on Star on the StarQuest YouTube channel. Be sure to subscribe to this show and all your favorite SQPN shows in Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and your favorite um, podcast app. We're your host, Catherine Laffrey. And Alex Murray. Welcome to the Secrets of Sacred Art again. And welcome back, Catherine. It's it's nice to see you again. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Volleyball so, season went well. <laughs> yay, yay. And now we're back. Now I'm back into jumper suite season or sweater season. So there you go. Oh, yeah. Um, so today we're going to follow up on uh, with a two-part series about one of the pieces of art featured in our last episode with um, good old Thomas Salerno on the secrets of TV and movies, where we discuss the film The Monuments Men. We're going to introduce you to the two to two of the men who created the most incredible piece of sacred art, Hubert and Jan van Eyck, the brothers who were behind the adoration of the mystical lamb, mystical lamb, also known as the Ghent Ulster piece. <clears throat> there we go. Let everybody remind them what we were looking exactly. at. Exactly. Yeah. Just take in that um, amazing, amazing piece of sacred art. And... Um, our viewers really should know that when we were trying to sort out how and what to share with everyone, it was n- nearly an impossible task for the two of us. We were just talking about oh, yeah. how it was just where to begin. And um, there was just so much that the brothers did. Um, there's so much about their world and ultimately about the altarpiece itself that we struggled um, to try to figure out where to begin Oh, there's so much information. You just type in one of their names and yeah. you're going to get lost. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But as um, Maria von Trapp used to say, uh, let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place, very to, good start. place to start. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we're just going to try to, we're going to have lots of links um, in the show notes for you. So please take your own deep dive, take your time. Um, and really get to know these artists and their world. And I think if you do that, once we start going into the altarpiece itself, it's going to, you're going to appreciate it even more. It's, um, it's just, it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. And I need to find another word because I was using that all the time. Are there any we words that thing. even work? I mean, really, these I guys know. I know. set the world on fire. <laughs> they did. Oh my gosh. And just, yeah. So what we want to do is kind of take you into the world of these world builders because they were master world builders. And um, sometimes I think, gosh, what would they have done with some of the medium and and digital medium today? Can you imagine what they would have done? Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Just blown our minds. It's kind of like if if Tolkien could write games and stuff. (laughs) But um, it's fascinating you bring that up because... There are some people out there who do digital images where you're getting closer and there's another digital image and closer. I'd have to say they should owe everything that they do now to the Van Eycks. I agree. They knew how to draw you in and show you something more. Yeah, absolutely. That you could just be in there forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was, they were just incredible, incredibly gifted men. And um, what kind of world would create men such as these two? Um, so I did so many deep dives. And again, <laughs> this is another show notes. So they were going to be looking at 14th and 15th century Flanders, which is now Belgium and part of um, parts of northern France. Oh, thank you very much, Catherine. Here's go. a nice Give everybody a little spot in the world to look. Yes, for. exactly. Exactly. And you can see you have Ghent and Bruges and Antwerp, um, Lille, all these different places in um, what was called the Burgundian Duchy or the 
the Duke of Burgundy was an incredibly powerful man. But I mean, I went on a deep dive with, with the Burgundian, I guess, um, legacy all the way back to when they were a tribe off the coast of Denmark. So, you know, you really took a deep dive. I (laughs) I just didn't know where to start because they were incredibly powerful. I think what's interesting is they were, this was an incredibly powerful kingdom and it's gone. Yeah. It's, you know, and, and so, and it was a really different kind of kingdom. I think that people don't necessarily think about in terms of where their power came from. So the, um, the Burgundian duchy, uh, where the brothers lived and they were in Bruges for a time, they were established there. Um, it was a very wealthy and cosmopolitan city and it was the home of some of the earliest corporation, international corporations in the world, um, such as the Hanseatic League, as well as international bankers and merchants. They traded in the finest wool from England the finest wine from France, and they did some pretty canny financial deals north of Venice. And, um, you know, we have some some examples of that. And I think if you take a look at um, the next slide. I have to say, though, that map, uh, location, location, location. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They were set up in the right place to go anywhere. Everywhere. To go anywhere and have the world come to them. And that's exactly what happened. It's, it was yeah. just um, a cornucopia of ideas and people and lots of money. Um, mm. now, Helps to be a port city, too. It, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and really have a, um, create a streamline to get your goods moved around the world and, mm-hmm. um, and ideas as well and culture. So it was, it was an extraordinary place I can imagine. And, um, the church was also very prominent, uh, in, in this Mm -hmm. area and it was very, very influential. And, um, she was a great patron of the arts as well in, in this time. And also I had an experience, my family and I went to Bruges many years ago and, um, we visited an old medieval hospital. And again, we'll have the links. People should take a look at this hospital. It'll blow your mind. The, um, this hospital was founded in the 12th century. It had over a thousand beds, which is impressive today for a hospital. When it was founded, a thousand yeah. beds. Amazing. Yeah. 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 They had, <laughs> they could take in a thousand patients. They, everybody attended, you know, if you had to be hospitalized, this is where you went. Um, mm-hmm. They took people who were indigents. Um, I don't know if that's even a nice word anymore, but whatever, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and um, urchins, shall I say, you know, children off the street, sick mm-hmm. people, uh, peasants, incredibly wealthy people. They all went to this hospital and um, and they were all tended to they had surgeons, they had professional doctors, people who specialized in different things, um, you know, people who, spe- doctors who specialized in the eyes or the ears, you know, and the main carers, though, were um, a religious order. And this hospital was active, I think they finally closed it down permanently in 1974. Wow. Yeah. That blows your mind. Mm-hmm. And, the, and when I was there, I asked, actually asked someone, this, you know, something, they must have been doing something right because you don't get from the 12th century to the 20th century doing a lot of things wrong. So what right. happened? And, um, and I was told it was because of de- the decrease in the number of religious. So that's what mm-hmm. ultimately yep. wrapped it up was people weren't joining religious orders anymore, which is really quite fascinating when you think about a culture that that was such a big part of it. And it was because you did have these these big religious orders that enabled actually enabled a lot of this stuff to happen. Mm-hmm. Really extraordinary things. And and that was part of the world that um, helped mold and create the Van Eyck brothers, which is something mm-hmm. to really think about the culture that, that these artists grew up in looked really, really different from our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were a large number of wealthy potential 
patrons and that gave artists and craftsmen endless opportunities to make a name for themselves and to create the finest examples of art the world has ever known. And that is not an exaggeration, just really stunning, stunning work. Um, The Guild of St. Luke was established Mm -hmm. in 1351 and it later became known as a corporation of image and saddle makers. I, I'm not sure. I'm sure there's some connection. Maybe some of our listeners and viewers. I mean, I love horses. Used to take care of horses when I was in high school. So to have that this guild was not only images, but saddles. It was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense to me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, see that I'm like wondering how. So it would. I mean, I'm I'm going to go with it. It's fine with me, but I just think it's nice that that combination like, oh, these two things should work together, you know, mm-hmm. and um, but this this guild consisted of painters on li- of linen and canvas. So you, you know, there were different techniques and um, mirror manufacturers, stained glass window artists. That kind of makes sense. And like mm-hmm. I said, saddle and harness makers. And, uh, well, of course, when you think about some of the medieval saddlery, oh, yeah. you know, it was quite impressive. So, maybe Oh, yeah, does... with a little bit of, like, silversmithing added on there in the buckles yeah, and clasps. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and and the mm-hmm. fabrics and all kinds of, you know, the blankets that the, the horses had, not just, they weren't just kind of cotton batting and wool kind of things. They mm-hmm, were quite, mm-hmm. quite fancy. And um, the guilds supported, trained, and represented its members, and as well as negotiated with patrons. So they were pretty powerful. And, you know, they... Marketing too. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and so and I'm actually a very strong believer that um, guilds should be reestablished because what's interesting is in this time in history, and again, this is where we have to realize this is going to be... Um, uh, it's a different world. You know, we're used to the starving artist, aren't we? Like from La Boheme, the starving, tragic artist scraping. I heard that's where it all starts is from some show somewhere that, you know, glorifies the starving artist. And all of a sudden, everybody's supposed to give their work away for free. Yeah, (laughs) that's not what these guys were doing. Or women, quite frankly. There were women in these guilds and... um, and they they had a voice, they had a, a political presence, they were incredibly talented, they supported natural talents, and they, of course, had a standard. You know, you couldn't produce something that was a piece of rubbish and expect to, to sell it. That just would not be tolerated. So they really had, you know, to be an artist, you could make a very good living because you had the, the support it was part of the culture. People mm-hmm. understood that beauty, um, beauty and artistry really, really was an important part of, um, of being a human being, which yes. we've always tried to talk about. So um, I'm just looking at, so the Netherlands and Flanders in the 14th century, they were flourishing and it was optimistic and it was probably um, a wonderful place to live. You had uh, lots of wealth and people willing to spend their money on the arts and crafts mm-hmm. and whether it was to adorn their homes or to pay tribute to God. Either way, if you were a talented artist, your work was in high demand and the artists and craftsmen were respected and moved easily in the circles of their patrons. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, it must have been an incredible experience and you needed to have a tremendous amount of natural cha- talent, as I said, because the demand was there mm-hmm. and um, and you had to be willing to work hard. Um, but that would have been fostered and supported by a society that valued those natural talents and the arts for various reasons, including for the good of their souls and the souls of others. That's a big mm-hmm. part of it. Yes. Um, so that was a small and somewhat idealized thumbnail sketch of the world of the brother brothers Van Eyck. And um, let's find out a little bit about the brothers themselves, shall we? Yeah. So we take a look. Um, we had this image. Yeah. Going back a little bit. The patronage. Yes. So this is called the Aldofini marriage portrait. And I'm sure a lot of people have seen it. It's a really interesting piece. Um, I actually saw it in person yesterday at the National Gallery in London. (laughs) Yes. And um, 
it's kind of amazing. It's, you know what? It's amazing to look at on a video screen or in a book. It's nothing compared to looking at it in real life. And I just, I would love for anybody, if you're in London, you need to go see this. If you're on holiday in London or somehow can get there, it's worth it. It's worth tramping up the steps and kind of pushing your way through the crowds just to look at this. It's a really so small. So my first question, since you got to see it in person, yeah, how big is it? Because you can never tell from a photograph. It's not that big. It's really? probably, no, it's... um. Oh my gosh, I didn't have my tape measure with me. Sorry, but okay, give it relative to body length then. <laughs> so I want to say it was a little like if you have like I have my laptop open. Like if I mm-hmm. if I were to open up my laptop and like straighten it, it's just a mm-hmm. tiny bit bigger than that. Oh it's wow, that's big. much smaller than I imagined. Yeah, yeah, it's small, and um and the details. I mean, you can get. In fact, my daughter was was with me and she's like, Mom, you're, you can't touch it. I'm like, I'm not going to touch it. But, you know, like, <laughs> my, I guess my face was so close to it. And even n- none of the detail is lost. None of the detail is lost. You get right. You get your nose right up against the nose of that little dog. And you can still see the little spark in his eye and um, his little wet nose and mm-hmm. his fur. You know, it's oh, incredible. Yeah. Well, this is one painting, I mean, throughout like high school and then college, it always comes up in art history. It's, it's iconic of that time. It is. It is. You can never get bored looking at it. No. There is always something new. And all these years I've looked at it, now having the, you know, computer screen to really jump deep into it. I took a real deep dive. I'm going to get our faces out of the way here. Yeah. And looked up real close at the mirror. Yeah. So just thinking about the size that you said that this piece is, that mirror is pretty small. It is. It's probably uh, maybe the size of, this is so bad. I've been out of the state so long, I don't know the size of money. But I would say this is a little bit bigger than a 50p coin. I don't know if there's a... (laughs) Oh, so so like a half dollar or... Yeah, yeah. Bigger than a quarter. Yeah, a little bit bigger than a quarter. Okay. That's tiny, especially seeing the reflection in there is so perfectly done. Yeah, yeah. And then that makes these little tiny bits where you have at the top, they have, he did a crucifixion of Christ. Yeah, well, that's the, those are the, um, I don't think it's the stations of the cross. One, two, three, four, five. Are these supposed to be like moments in the life of Mary? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think so. And also, they are supposed to be set behind glass. And that's what you are seeing, the reflections. So they're kind of, they would be set behind glass that would be kind of concave or domed. Mm -hmm. And that would would have magnified that image a little bit in the mirror itself. So it's a concave mirror. And then all of these little images around it are also concave. Yeah. Beautiful. Absolutely. And then I also added behind here the little wooden clogs. Yeah. And they have mud on them. The muddy streets of Bruges or Ghent. Yeah. Just a little detail like that is fascinating. It is. It absolutely is. And people would have understood that. You know, there's a lot of symbolism in this um, painting that is missed on, on, I think, the average person in... I mean, it's missed on me. It's missed on you. Mm-hmm. There are some things that, that just have, have um, symbols that have fallen out of use that we don't know anymore. And unless you're, you know, highly trained and you, you know, you spend your life studying this, you're not going to get, you're not going to understand everything. But one of the things I think is fascinating about this, if you can go back to the, um, the, the larger painting so we can take a look at, yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you. So this woman mm-hmm. in this glorious robe, which is made of wool and the sleeves, that kind of thing, they're, they're pinked or they're just snipped um, Mm -hmm. to create that, that folding. It's a way of cutting the, uh, the wool. So it's not sewn like that. It's, 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 it's sheared or, or cut in a particular way. And we will definitely have a link so that people can see this high resolution image. And thankfully, 
there are some great high res um, images out there that you yeah, can on your computer just zoom way in at your leisure. You're going to want to take your time with this because all the little pinking cuts on the ruffle of that sleeve are fabulous. Even they the ruffle are. of her headdress is just yeah, amazing. Yeah. It has yeah. the same pinking. And um, what's interesting is, so this is called the Arnolfini marriage proposal or marriage portrait. But when I was doing research on this, it turns out that this image was actually painted. Um, the woman in this painting, the bride was dead when um, oh. this was painted. So it's not a marriage uh, painting. You know, it could have been a lot of times donors and patrons will put themselves into paintings in in a way of bidding for prayers of people who would see the painting. And so knowing that she had died, perhaps this was a way of the widower or his family or even her family to, to have like, you know, please remember to pray for her because that was, that was one of the reasons patrons used to have Mm -hmm. themselves painted into paintings. Um, Yeah. So, and then on the um, other side, oh, can you go back? Oh yeah. Go back to that. Sorry. No, that's okay. Oops, oops, oops. Go back to the painting. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. So in the background, so the the um, one, two, three, the third one over, right above the painting, and I think a lot of people might know this already, but I just think it's lovely that Jan van Eyck wrote in his really beautiful hand. I mean, he even had great handwriting. Um, mm-hmm. He wrote, Jan van Eyck was here. <laughs> I can and, never imagine myself signing the middle of a painting. Yeah, but you know what? If you could paint like that, <laughs> oh heck yeah, it would yes. be just fine. <laughs> if I had a patron who said, "Please put your name in the middle," I would gladly do that for exactly, them. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And in that reflection of the mirror, you can see Jan van Eyck mm-hmm. as he's painting. It's really, it's he's just an incredible um, artist, and and also the these patrons should give you a reflection of the wealth and the um, the cosmopolitan world that they lived in. You know, you've got oranges by the um, windowsill on the little um, desk or table mm-hmm. or chest, you know, velvet, um, furs, probably from Scandinavia uh, mm-hmm. or Russia. You've got the wool that probably came from England. At this point, England was, was known for um, exporting some of the finest wool in Europe. So, you know, these people, they, they were wearing things that were imported, very expensive. The little dog, I don't think that was a working dog. No, he's definitely a little toy. (laughs) Yeah. He's just, he's their little, he's their little friend in the house and indulgence. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, I just hope the oranges don't have the same meaning they do in the Godfather. Oh, <laughs> no, I think this was, this was in Northern Europe, <laughs> not New York in, uh, was it the 1960s, 1930s? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, but anyway, um, yeah, so that was just an, a little bit of an example of the younger brother, Jan van Eyck. But um, let's talk a little bit about both of them. They were Hubert. And Jan van Eyck were born in a village of Mesik near Maastricht. And my apologies for the pronunciations. I was doing such a deep dive on everything. I failed to um, look up how to pronounce things. So my apologies. <laughs> um, they were one of several children in a family of painters. Uh, they did have a sister, Margareta, who was a, a well-known um miniaturist and another brother Lambert who was the younger brother and he actually eventually took over the family workshop when Jan van Eyck passed away and so here we have Meister Hubertus Pictor and he was born around 1366 to 1390 so again a little bit vague of when he was born he was the older of the two brothers and he was considered by Jan van Eyck to be the superior artist, which boggles the mind. But okay, mm-hmm. Jan, if you say that. And so here we have a picture that had, at one point, it was attributed to 
a painter called Petrus Christus, who actually studied in the Van Eyck workshop. But now experts believe that this is the one surviving painting by Hubert Van Eyck. And it is the Three Marys at the tomb. And um, there's just a lot to take in on this one, isn't there? Uh, Oh, yeah. Those classic Van Eyck uh, angel wings. Love, love the angel wings. They look like they're glowing. There's just Mm -hmm. a radiance from the inside out. Yeah. And, and then um, all the detail into the landscape behind. Yeah. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I think what, what I find really fascinating about what they can do, they almost have, and again, this is what makes their world so familiar and yet otherworldly. It has this dimension that, you know, we have in the natural world, but the way it's set up and a little bit flat it, it's, it really takes you into another world. Like you feel mm-hmm. like you could be walking around in that world, but yes. it would be really different. It would be a really different, strange place to be. Mm-hmm. Um, again, the, the angles this of the This guy sounds strange. Maybe <clears throat> it seems like a more real, real. Yes. World. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Because, you know, you can see, you know, the tomb you can see angles of the tomb that you wouldn't naturally be able to see mm-hmm. if you were standing somewhere. But you can see the whole tomb. You can see the completeness of it. You can see, you know, the rich folds of the angel's cloth, clothes and, well, everyone's clothes. And, yeah. um, you know, the three soldiers sleeping all cuddled up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if there's you could just go right up there and be part of it, part of the of what was going on and you could be kind of the fourth person going to the the tomb. So it really is fascinating the way they managed to, to portray the world. Yes. Um, and so Hubert was thought is believed that he was actually a member of the minor orders at St. John the Baptist and St. John the Evangelist cathedral uh, okay. in, um, in Ghent. And, and the reason, and I was like, well, why do you think that? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's because there are no wedding records associated with his name and there are no children um, Uh. associated with his name. And I was kind of like, well, so what, you know, like, so you (laughs) suddenly just assume that the man was a religious, but um, he was buried the way he was buried and, and everything ah, does okay. suggest that he was probably um, one of the minor orders at the cathedral. Mm-hmm. He was given a, um, a place of honor when he was buried. And so he could have been um, uh, w- with the minor orders we're talking about. He could have been an acolyte. He could have been um, a lectern. He could have been an exorcist. And that is actually quite interesting when you look at some of their paintings and, and how, how an exorcism is uh, depicted. So mm, but we'll, yeah. we'll more on that later. Um, <laughs> so uh, that's really all we know about um, Hubert von Eyck. Because he died before the Ghent altarpiece was finished. He had started it. It's believed that he probably had um, the larger uh, degree of decision-making in its layout. Mm-hmm. But he died before it was finished. And um, and so the, the rest of it was left over to Jan van Eyck, who had an extraordinary career. And so let's see if we can talk a little bit about Jan van Eyck. And he was born in 1390. Yes. And this is his portrait, his self-portrait. And I saw this yesterday. Um, Mm. This is really tiny. This is about half the size of my laptop screen. It's really tiny. Would you say smaller than a piece of paper? Um, Like a standard? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I was surprised at how small it was and you can get right up to it. And it's like looking at a person. Yes. You know, and it's, it's kind of strange because it's, you know, we always, I don't know. It's like a standard of, of, of 
artist talent. It's like, oh, how real can that be? It, you know, when you have a lot of hyper-realism art, which is kind of on the other extreme of abstract art, you know, it's yeah. so hyper-realistic and you kind of get lost in the ability of the artist to do this amazing thing. Mm-hmm. But with Jan van Eyck, you get lost in the person. Yes. You get lost in the subject. You don't get lost in somebody's ability to do something or kind of confused with what they were trying to do. You know exactly what he was doing here. And, and this is beyond the level of a painting that looks photorealistic. It is. It is. It's it is. so beyond it because he, you can do something photorealistic and not capture the essence of the person, their soul. But the way Jan van Eyck captures the person, you, you feel like you look at them and go, I know that person. Yeah. And you feel like you, there's like a strong connection right away. I mean, and especially the way he does eyes. I yeah. was just blown away zooming in on the detail in the eyes, not because of how realistic it is, yeah. but it really feels like a window to the soul. Yeah, there's a depth there. You almost, you could, you could almost have, you, you almost expect him to start speaking to you, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what I love. This, this face of this man who lived all those centuries ago, and here we are absolutely connected. It's like he's sitting right next to us. And, and then, um, Alex, you got to tell us about the words on the frame. Oh, yes. He said, as best as I, uh, um, as well as I can. That's what it says at the top. So he was, that was his. Now, is it really a play on his name? I thought I yes. saw that in a couple yes. places. Okay. It is. So it's a play on his name and it's kind of to show, it's like a, um, I don't want to say false hum- humility because I'm the kind of person that, uh, I think if you can do something, it's not, it's not, um, arrogant to say you can do it mm-hmm. if you can do it well. You know, I always think about, uh, if you, if you ever have read Beowulf and, you know, he's like, oh, he's such a boastful man. Well, no, he is actually not. He can do exactly what he says he can do. And right. it's the same thing with, with Jan van Eyck, as well as I can. Yes. As well as you can. Um, I mean, and look at the folds on his, if that is not a turban on his head, I believe that is called a chaperon. And okay. he knew what turbans looked like because when we look at the, um, the Ghent altarpiece, there are some, some of the figures have turbans. So he knew what a turban looked like, but that's not what this is. This is and he was rather well-traveled. He was very well traveled. Yeah, was very well educated, and um, and this was a fantastic self portrait. And it is; it's very mm-hmm. tiny, very tiny, and um, so he either had really good eyes or a magnifying glass. <laughs> probably a little bit of both. You know, they used a lot of tools. You know, again, as I was looking this up, I mean, you know, there are some things in the Ghent altarpiece, and you're going, "How on earth did they do that?" But then reading some research papers and I felt kind of better because in one of the research papers, the researcher who actually was involved in cleaning the Ghent altarpiece, she said, this was so overwhelming. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It's not just us. This is something. And there are techniques now that are, that have been lost that they used. So Mm -hmm. we don't know. You had the camera obscura, which I think, um, Certainly the Dutch masters were using in the 16th century. There could have been something similar here. Oh, there's a new one that's available to artists now. Yes, I think I've seen it. Yeah. From the night. Yeah. I I can't remember what it's called, but people have used things all over the, I mean, you can use tools and then if you actually know what you're doing and you're talented, it's only going to help enhance your talent it's kind of like um you know i i don't even know what to compare it to because i'm it's funny i was thinking about it because a lot of times when you mention to someone that you use a tool to help you accomplish something Mm -hmm. they're like oh then you didn't do it by hand and it's like well no that would be like saying 
Um, instead of using a hand saw, I used a band saw. Or I'm sorry, <laughs> you know. Or yeah, I didn't. I didn't nibble at this like a beaver, you know, carving this piece of yeah. wood. No, you know. So, yeah, tools are part of the human experience. It's it's what we do to accomplish the task that we have in mind. When we do the uh, 3D printers, that's a little different. I know someone's got to program the shape. Although yeah. sometimes there's scanners that do it for you. So there are bits of technology that have gone beyond and are trying yeah. to do it for you. But there are tools that help an artist to accomplish what they need to do. And especially in a time crunch and trying to accomplish something to get it done in a deadline. You're not going to yeah. do the constant detail of hand drawing. Careful, careful, careful. When you've already like drawn at once. I'll draw a sketch and I want that exact sketch larger. I'm going to use my art projector to make it the size I and want. And that's what they did. And and also, I yeah. don't even know if they thought about it in those ways. Like, oh, this is on, this is authentic. I mean, if you had a workshop and you had different people working for you and with you and you had immense things to do, uh, you know, you, you, you used what you could. And, um, but again, underneath all of that, the foundation of that was a profound natural talent, um, and understanding of the subject matter. Yeah. And certainly for the Gant altar piece, a really deep understanding of what was happening in the mass and all of that, you know, so if they wanted to use something to help them out a little bit, you know, I would be like me or you, you know, doing embroidery. Oh, well, we didn't use a needle. We just kind of poked the thread. I mean, I guess you could well, do it that way, but it's not going to look, look the same. If you look behind me on this side, I've got my magnifying glass. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and that use... enables me to do a lot of detail in a tiny little space. Exactly. And I'm sure they had things like that all over their workshop. And some things have been lost to time. Um, but, you know, you... you uh, was it grace builds on nature and i think it's the same mm -hmm. thing with some of the tools that we use um so anyway that was a little bit of a tangent <laughs> good tangent it, yeah it was it was so so again going back to jan van eyck um he was um he was trained as a miniaturist and an artist under some of um netherlands masters uh, in the paris workshops and he has been identified in the what this is what we're looking at here is the Turin Milan hours book of hours and he has been identified as hand G meaning that he painted certain things in this book so several different artists worked on this this incredible um, book of hours and this is what Jan van Eyck did and one of the reasons um, he has been identified as Hand G is because of this, this um, image of, I believe this is the Nativity of John the Baptist. Uh, that's right. Nativity of John the Baptist. And I just, and I love that the, the one nurse who's kind of trying to get the, the little toddler to maybe pick him up to see the newborn baby or something. Mm -hmm. But um but if you take a look at the young woman in blue, and that would have been Our Lady because she's got the blue uh, robe with the red interior, and you can see that she looks like she's expecting. Mm -hmm. And if you see the way her head is tilted and her arm is stretched, outstretched, it is the same position as um, the bride in the Arnolfini uh, marriage portrait. And in the background, you can see there are some people like down the hallway from her. <clears throat> and that, in a way, mirrors um, Jan van Eyck in the, in the back of the two uh, subjects in the mirror. It mirrors the, the mirror. <laughs> it mirrors the mirror. Thank you. Yes, that's a good way to put it. It mirrors the mirror. And so this is, so you can see he was trained. He, he worked with very similar to um, Bougaro when they, they will work with things that work. And so this, this particular posture um, and, the, you know, the arms outstretched and the draping of the fabrics is very, very similar. And, um, but this particular image, it's, an, it's in a book and it's very tiny. Yes. And so he could, 
um, and we'll talk about scale and how they could go, how these um, artists, these brothers, and not just them, but a lot of the, the Flemish primitives who, the, who were doing this kind of work, they knew how to go from a very tiny scale to a very large scale. They, were, they used techniques to do this. And I'm sure they must have had some kind of projection or some kind of grafting that they had to do in order to get all the proportions right. Yeah, so. I find it fascinating seeing the work in a manuscript. And then it also makes me wonder, was there a separate artist to do all the little vining work around the outside? And I think, did, yeah. Did he do just the inside? Because just like there's separate people to do the calligraphy work. Yeah. So it's neat to see. And then I did see just to, you know, rabbit hole myself hours and hours on the computer. Mm. You can actually purchase a reproduction of the entire book. Oh, my gosh. If you have the money for it. Uh, there, we'll, we'll put the link oh, in the show free? notes. <laughs> oh, golly. I wish it was, but no, it's not. But oh, my gosh, they do such beautiful work. Um, I think it had like a velveteen cover on it if you want to get really crazy. Oh, wow. But we'll definitely put a link in the show notes to uh, the company that does that if you feel like you really yeah. want to have some beautiful artwork in your home with the Nice Christmas the hours. Mm, yeah, there you go. Yeah. And then I had to take a closer look at this beautiful little piece at the bottom of the page. So you go from John the Baptist's birth to then him baptizing Christ in the little scene at the bottom of the page. Yeah. And, you know, John's kneeling at the riverside. Christ is at, in the water in the riverbank. Beautiful little sun glitters across the water and little waves here and there. And as you look into the painting, you just keep going further and further back. And there's still so much detail. Yeah, there's a windmill in the back. (laughs) There's two little windmills back there. I was like shocked every time I went closer. Yeah. And then even seeing the moon out. Yeah. Tucked behind the sun. And I think we got a little closer even yet. Yeah. Just to take you into a whole other world. Little people walking on a path up the hillside. Yeah. You know, trees off in the distance, a castle on a hillside. Yeah, yeah. It's Mm -hmm. and and all the different trees. Yeah, these Mm broadleaf trees. And I'm just thinking if you go back to the like the 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 baptism of Christ. Yeah. So if you look at that, thank you. So you have God the Father in Mm -hmm. the D, you have the Holy Spirit coming down, you have the Son. So there you have the, the Trinity. But then of course you know, Our Lady is traditionally associated with the moon. Mm, yes. So it's kind of like you've got everybody there. Yeah, yeah. So, and I would say, oh, I don't know if they meant to, to do that. But somehow I think, you know, they didn't do anything randomly. These right. Guys. Yeah, there's nothing really random didn't. about this. Mm-hmm. No. Okay. <clears throat> so, um... One of the things, and if we've got, if we can show a couple of more images mm-hmm. that Jan van Eyck painted, uh, he perfected what's called the three-quarter view of, of oh, the subject. Yes. Now, the, the, um, the man on the left is Jan de Leek, and um, the woman on the right is Margaret van Eyck, who was um, Jan van Eyck's wife. And, of course, she has that same kind of, um, I don't know if you'd call that a wimple or some kind of veil that um, the bride in the Arnolfini portrait Mm -hmm. had, that white with the the little pinking of this really fine, high-quality wool. And um, But this three-quarter angle of the human face is not an easy thing to draw. No. Or paint, or to get right, because if you get it wrong, it looks really wonky. But yeah, you kind of flatten the nose sometimes, <laughs> or the cheek sticks out too yeah. far. Yeah, it's amazing. You just shift something a little tiny bit, and the whole thing can just—it's like a house of cards sometimes. Yeah. But um, and I—I I would imagine that these two are quite small as well. In fact, mm-hmm. um, Jan de Leek there, he does look kind of scrunched up in in the painting itself. And, um, you know, but this, this three-quarter angle 
uh, is something mm-hmm. that he really, and of course, when you're doing something like this, there's a method to it. And mm-hmm. whatever method he used was absolutely perfect. And, um, yeah, and, we can zoom in a little closer on their faces. Yeah. And again, the way the eyes look at you, they look right at you. You know, I, you know, here we are looking at them digitally and they look like they're looking at us. It's amazing. Yeah, I would have to say the portrait of Jan there, the first time I looked, I was like, that looks so familiar. Like he could be someone just walking down the street right now. Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing. They both And I love this. He has the stubble on his chin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Must have been a trendy thing for the time because rather quite a few of the men in the Von Eich paintings have uh, stubble. <laughs> That's true. Or, I, you know, who knows how close his shave or... You know, maybe it was something you shaved, you know, maybe people didn't shave every th- single day. Yeah, that could be. Yeah, yeah. Why bother? <laughs> yeah. You know, but clearly, um, you know, the, and, and he was, he's got his fur-lined coat, and I believe, um, I'm not sure what kind of hat he's wearing, but... Uh, yeah, it's hard to tell, even in the full image, because he looks like it's oh, lost. Maybe it's another form of a chaperone. I don't know. I yeah, don't know. it seems like looks a like, bit of a wrap. Yeah, looks like it probably he probably could ha- get some cleaning, have a, a little bit of a, that makes a big difference. It just brightens mm-hmm. everything up. And then we have Margaret on the on the left, and I think he actually did this portrait. If I remember, it was for one of their anniversaries, which is really sweet. Ah, that is sweet. Yeah, yeah. She has a wonderful facial expression. Where she can, you know, you feel like she can go stern real easily, but at the same time, she's tender. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She might be quick to smile, but quick to be angry as well. (laughs) (laughs) And then I had to take another closer look. Yeah. The eye, again, beautifully done, just looks through you and lets you in at the same time. Yeah. And it's reflective. Yeah. Yes. And could not resist zooming in on the, the little hair style there. Yeah. So totally uh, to put uh, Padme Amidala jealous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you're not a Star Wars geek, you don't know. That's, you know, one of the, the amazing headpieces of the Queen of the Naboo. Yeah. In I'm, Star I'm Wars. sure that this was, I'm sure she had some kind of influence on this and, or on um, the costumes for for Queen Amidala. But, Mm -hmm. you know, the lace that's around her hair, and it might have been her hair, could have been um, some kind of, you know, know, um, they must have done something to stiffen it, and and it could have been her hair wrapped around something underneath there. I don't know how they would have done Mm -hmm. such a complex hairstyle, but just the lace, it, it was probably, that had to have been made from silk, Possibly, and it looks like it was probably lace, or it could have been um, crocheting, mm-hmm. something like that. And you can see. Okay, I the- just had a crazy thought. Mm-hmm. All of her hair could actually be tucked up and behind. Yeah, and that could be horse hair already preformed on a little thing you just put on. Yeah, like a little hat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like a little just fat. to make it look like she's got very elaborate hairdo. Well, it's interesting because there was a lot of the women had that, and I can't imagine somebody. I mean, women have always had a little bit of help, you know, when mm-hmm. it comes to some of these hairstyles. I mean, even today, the things that people are willing to go through to yeah. uh, to get their hair done, um, and but also you can see a little bit of the the veil the 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 wool the woolen veil that she has how it was probably gathered and pulled and then sheared it must have been mm-hmm. fascinating i'm sure some of these youtubers who like to recreate historical costumes somebody must have figured oh, yeah. out how to do that that would be so mm-hmm. cool yeah it'd yeah, be gorgeous i'd love to wear it looks like, like the side of the wedding cakes where they just squiggle the frosting <laughs> it's yeah. beautiful yeah and and the and the braid going underneath so that does actually suggest that that might be something that she would put on her head and it wouldn't be her hair is this braid going just following along the little cone mm-hmm. shape even that the highlights on every single little braid yeah flat of the braid 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Incredible Gorgeous. detail. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now I have to say when he, when he died, um, his greatest patron was Philip the Good, who was the Duke of um, Burgundy at the time. Mm-hmm. And when Jan van Eyck died, um, the Duke gave his wife, I believe it was either one or two years pay that he would have received as the court artist, which nice. was incredible. And, um, yeah, and he paid tribute to Jan van Eyck. Jan van Eyck actually had a very interesting political career as well. He was kind of a, a diplomat slash um, artist. He went to Portugal and, and painted the Infanta of Portugal as a, who was going to be and turned out to be um, the Duke's wife. And, um, and so he, yeah, he had that job of negotiating and and painting the portrait at the same time. And that must've been interesting, Mm -hmm. an interesting job. So he, he really was quite, like I said, he's so prominent in so many different ways. And he was also very influential on other artists Mm -hmm. of the time in Europe. And of course, because of where he was, you would have artists coming up from Venice and other parts of Italy and Germany and England, um, France, everywhere. And, um, and what he and his brother were able to do with oil painting was extraordinary. Now, um, there used to be a legend that he invented oil painting, but that's not yeah, true. Yeah, I've heard that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very exciting. I mean, it kind of is really cool and you almost want it to be true. Like he's like in his, in his workshop and I don't know, something happens and like, by you know magic like it's like Gandalf <laughs> and he yeah. just comes up with something or um I'm sure in the like movie version of his life they would have it as if you yeah. know I was he thinking created it <laughs> yeah or I'm just thinking is if oh, now I'm gonna I'm gonna get in trouble here it's not Feanor who who made the Cimmerils but that's kind of what I was thinking oh, who, yeah yeah and um but he didn't he mm-hmm. I think so there's there's um there is evidence that uh, that some Benedictines were using oil paints like in the 12th century. But I think what he did, he and his brother did, is they perfected absolutely the technique of, of blending the oils and the type of oils and varnishes that they used. Um, and so whatever the, the pigment was suspended in, they really are the ones they worked on on. Um, mixing it in such a way that they could paint thin layer over thin layer and still have the layers underneath come through. And that's one of the reasons that so much of their painting, their paintings just seem to glow. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was a really, you know, it was a technique that, that, um, that nobody had done before. And so I think you've got a couple of, you do have a couple oh, yeah. of examples one is an early, the one on the left is um, a young man in, um, I'm going to just say it's another chaperone. Yeah. It's quite an extraordinary headpiece he's wearing. And yes. um, this is by Jan van Eyck. It's an early painting by his. And I think you can see that, you know, he's over the years, he perfected his technique and, um, Similar so, pose to the previous portrait we looked at with the man holding a ring in his hand. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, he's got a, he's got a ring as well. And I think that is something that you do see a lot in the Flemish primitives. In fact, I remember going to a museum and sometimes um, some artists were quite clever and they would paint the tips of the fingers over the frame so it actually looked like the person's hand was coming out of the painting oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah so they they were really they were really quite quite clever and and had some mm-hmm. humor there and and as i said extraordinary talent so this was jan van eyck's painting of a young man in a blue chaperon and then on the right is an italian artist who was very influenced by jan van eyck now, in Italy, they really just used, um, not just, but they, they were using, they painted on frescoes, they used egg tempera, or they painted on wet plaster. 
And so it had a different effect, but when these, um, when the uh, Flemish artists and the North started using oil paintings, they, they were getting a more realistic or a softer um, uh, renderings of, of faces and images that they just couldn't get uh, with the egg temper. A lot of times it would look chalky and egg temper has its certainly has its um, its purpose. And there are some things that you can do with egg temper that you can't do with anything else. So, you know, mm-hmm. each, each one serves its purpose. So the um, portrait of the Blessed Mother on the right is by um, Antonello della Messina. And, um, and so he was, he was um, an early follower of Jan van Eyck. I don't know if they were contemporaries, but he definitely was influenced. And so he started using oils. And then we all know what happened, you know, with um, when you go into the Renaissance and then the Baroque era, the the Italians really figured out what they were doing with oil painting as well. Mm-hmm. And so, but Jan van Eyck, the van Eycks were the ones who kind of started it all and um, and did it in such an extraordinary way. And like I said, um, uh, so we could go in, you know, I'm just looking, gosh, it's been an hour <laughs> still talking about him. Well, and yeah, let's see um, this piece. Yeah. Let's just, let's show this one because this, this is kind of will make sense. So this is a good way to kind of wrap up Jan van Eyck's life. So he painted this, um, for, he was commissioned by Canon Juris von de Pela. Uh, and this is called the the Virgin and Child with Canon Yours von der Pela, and it's the second largest um, von Eyck painting. So all the other ones seem quite small. When you get, start getting into this painting, and then of course the altarpiece, then they're massive. Mm-hmm. But um, and again, you know, the Canon was there. Not to, it wasn't like. I guess you could be kind of cynical and go, oh, he, this is kind of like somebody builds a massive wing on this, on, of a hospital and they want to name it after themselves. I mean, okay, maybe, but again, they were living in a very different world. And when patrons would put themselves into the painting, it was because they wanted people to remember to pray for them. They mm-hmm. knew they needed prayer Yeah. when, you know, after they died. And this was a way of actually in a very humble it was a very humble um, way of asking for prayer by putting yourself mm-hmm. in something like this. And this is such a beautiful, beautiful painting. I mean, my gosh, we could do a whole, we could do an episode <laughs> on this one. You could just get lost in everything, whether it's. That's what's so amazing about their paintings is you yeah. really can just go detail by detail. I mean, yeah. we could do a whole season of. Van Eyck work. <laughs> one of the things I have to say, I found out about this one, and this is beautiful. And, and this is to show you, they knew what they were doing on so many different levels. Um, the theology behind this. So in this painting, you have the blessed mother with the Christ child on her lap and you have the canon soliciting, um, as praying, showing her reverence and, um, the cloth behind her is called the cloth of honor. And this was something that was reserved. Yeah, this was something that was reserved for royalty and obviously for someone of power and, you know, religious or otherwise. And this cloth is, you know, it has all kinds of flowers that would have some kind of association association with the Blessed Mother. And her red cloak at the time, and we're talking about the meaning of colors. So the mm-hmm. red for the, for the blessed mother in this, um, represents the love she has for the, for her children, all of her mm-hmm. children. And, and if you kind of zoom out again to see the whole yep. thing, it was, it was very much intentional that this love and in the form of a red cloak was overflowing and coming down and almost, and, you know, kind of coming down, almost reaching out to all of these patrons around her Mm -hmm. and then reaching out to the the viewers as well. 
Isn't that beautiful? That is beautiful. Yeah. I love the cloth behind her, how it has a garden feel. Yeah. So yeah. she can really see her as the new Eve. Exactly. Yeah. Oh. The new Adam and the new Eve. And I think mm-hmm. the Christ child is holding a bird. And mm-hmm. I, and it looks like an exotic bird, actually. It looks like it might be some kind of parrot. And I'll be honest, I have read about it, but I can't, it's not coming to my head at the moment. Ah, and okay. I'm just so overwhelmed by, there's just so many things, so many things that we could go into. Oh, and look, right behind her, mm-hmm. if you see, I, I think that would be Cain and Abel. I was going to say that looks like Cain and Abel in the center of this image, um, right underneath the the uh, glass window there. Yeah. And again, that's another signature Van Eyck imagery is that, what do they call it, um, bottle, bottom glass? Bottle where the glass. glass is, yes, yeah. where it looks, yeah, the spun disc of glass. Yeah. So just beautifully done. Yeah, yeah. Just and their whole, like... Focus on optics and light is so yeah. beautifully played out. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so, we, you know, we'll, this is, this is something that is a deep dive. And, um, you know, if anybody has any questions about this particular image, maybe they could put it in our, our discord chat and, and we can do a little bit of research, but I tell you this one, you know what, you could spend your whole life just on one Van Eyck mm-hmm. painting. Yes, I would love our One. listeners to look up some of these links and zoom in on something that you find special and share it with us on Discord. Yeah, yeah, because there's so much. There's so much. Now and in our house right now, this is the time of year for puzzles. We're recording as we're going into Advent. And I could not imagine these as puzzles. I know. <laughs> Yeah, it would so be so difficult. <laughs> it would be, but and also it would just be difficult because you'd spend half the time just staring at one piece, getting lost mm-hmm. in one little piece instead of putting them all together. But yeah, it's well, I have one, um, one other face I got lost in. Okay, yeah. And it's this one. I believe he's a cardinal. He's in his red. I forget his yeah. name right now. Um, but when I first saw this face and zoomed in on it, especially knowing that he looks almost about the same age as my dad right now. Mm. And it's like, what a beautiful way to paint someone who's at that point in life where you've, you've gained wisdom, you've gained knowledge and you know, you're just kind of in that moment of life where things don't change quickly. You don't want them to. Mm-hmm. And then the way that he did the eyes and the wrinkles you know, he felt he felt he made again someone who felt familiar. And I just love the way Van Eyck tackled people having an older face and an yeah. older soul. You can pick it up in the eyes. Yeah. Including himself. Mm-hmm. You know, and oh, his yeah. wife. He was he was yeah. very. um, Yeah. Uh, yeah. So he's he. So this is just the first part of this. And um, I wish that we could spend a little more time but that's why we're going to have it in two parts so yes uh, and we're going to do our best to tackle it uh but not at all touching even a little tiny bit of it but we want everyone to just join us in this um in this adventure it is going to be fun this is going to be a deep dive it is the most incredible piece of art i've ever really studied and I've not, and we've not really studied it, have we? I mean, we just, no, I feel like no. we're just touching the surface and I feel like I need to go to Ghent. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that would be wonderful. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, and yes. not just for the chocolate. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah but, um, you know, so, so yes. Yeah, so we would love for everyone to join us um, next time when we, mm-hmm. uh, we show you a little bit more about the world of the Brothers Van Eyck. Uh, through the Ghent altarpiece. And now um, I'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of sacred art, including Rob H., Frank C., Claire R., David G., and Grant S. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give 
make it possible for us to continue the secrets of sacred art and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash gives. Yeah. So thank you all for listening and hopefully watching on YouTube, The Secrets of Sacred Art. We'll be back next time when we do a deep dive into the greatest work created by the Brothers Van Eyck, the Ghent Altar Piece. Until next time, I'm Catherine Laffrey. And I'm Alex Murray. And we hope you find something beautiful. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Here's another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy, The Secrets of Middle Earth. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash Middle Earth.